So I want you to think about the biggest promise ever made to you. Because promises have a way of changing your lives. The big ones do at least. Among the many promises made to me, some of the biggest, one of them was the promise Pastor Brett made to me years ago. When he looked at myself and the 11 naive people who said yes to going and said, we'll plant you in L.A. and we'll be your family, we'll support you. That promise opened up doors, brought down resources, and it unfolded a destiny for myself, the core team, and this church that would not have been possible without that promise. Promises can do that. And you all have been on the receiving end of some big promises, I'm sure. The reason I bring that up is because today in our passage, Romans chapter 8, and you can turn your Bibles there as I continue to talk, but in Romans 8, you have perhaps the greatest, most important promise made in Scripture. This is one of those promises you need to memorize and sear into your brain because this promise opens up everything and has the potential to really change your life. Romans chapter 8, verse 28. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. In my time with you today, I want to look at this promise in three different ways. One, as a window, second, as a lifesaver, and third, as a guarantee. I'll do my best to do that in 30 minutes. So, a window. This promise is a window into the heart of God for us. If you can rewind back to your youth, you might have had a moment where your parents were talking to someone who had supervision over you. It could be a coach. It could be uh, a teacher or perhaps a youth pastor. And you're not privy to that conversation because it's adult only. And you're off at a distance trying to busy yourself, but you're peeking like, does my mom look okay? Does she seem happy in that conversation? And there's some anxiety about that because they're talking about you and you don't know what they're saying, so you're kind of waiting to see how your mom and dad look as they turn out and walk towards you. Arms crossed or arms behind their back. Do their faces look grim? Do you know that there's a conversation happening right now between the Father, Son, and Spirit about you? And there might be some anxiety about that because unlike your youth pastor, they see everything. Nothing's hidden from the sight of God. So you're wondering, ah, I wonder how their face looks. What is the content of their conversation? And this is beautiful. Let's rewind one verse. Verse 27. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit. Because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. So you have the Holy Spirit praying for us. What is the content of the will that he's praying? Right after 27 comes verse 28. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him. So you have the Spirit talking to God about verse 28 for your life. But then you go down to verse 34. It's not just the Spirit praying for you. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus, who died more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. So you get this beautiful, mysterious picture of the Godhead. Jesus at the right ear, the Holy Spirit presumably at the left ear, 
And in stereo effect, they are saying the same thing to God. In all things, let's work out everything for Dihon's good. It's like the father is disagreeing. He's like, come on, convince me. Because <laughs> I know Dihon, and you better make a good case for him. There is no disunity in the Godhead. Right? Or else they wouldn't be in perfect, perfect unity or intimacy. Like, they agree about everything because they know everything together. And so all three of them are nodding in this conversation, saying verse 28 over my life and over your life. The Godhead, 24-7, are having an eternal conversation about you, about how to make verse 28 real for you. That in all things, God, them, are working together for your good. Why do we deserve that? Well, we don't. Why would these divine beings be committed so much for your good? Well, the only glimpse I get that could possibly explain that kind of grace is back in Romans chapter 8, verses 14 to 17, where Paul details how our spirit cries, Abba, Father, that the spirit in us longs and loves to see God as daddy, because we are sons and daughters of God, legitimate adopted children who are as much his children as Jesus is. Now this begins to make sense. Because in my many, many conversations with Julie about my, our kids across the kitchen table, never has there been uh, a sentence that begins with, how do we mess up our kids on purpose? <laughs> how do we jack them up? How do we trick them? Make false promises? <clears throat> twist their little characters, and just mess them up. Even as flawed parents. And we might plan some difficult things for our kids, but even in that, we're always aiming for their good. And so even if, if sinful, flawed parents instinctively understand that we would never purposefully wish harm upon our children, how much more the perfect Godhead when they're talking about us, it is always the contours of verse 28. Now, it takes a little minute, it takes a minute or two for that to sink in, for that to be real, because I know if you're like me, we don't believe that. We think God, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit are like three disgruntled teachers in the teacher's lounge. <laughs> Did you see that guy yes, last night? You see what he said to his kids this morning? What a fool. But that, Romans 8.1 tells us, is no longer true because there's no more condemnation. All that's taken up by the cross of Jesus Christ. And what's left is this inexplicable, mind-blowing grace where what they say over us... And here's the other thing, as parents... The gap between my promise and reality is pretty stark. I have broken so many promises to my daughters. It's ridiculous. I don't even know why they keep trusting me. That in itself is a lesson of divine grace and mercy. <laughs> but if God says verse 28 over my life, it's coming true. Because he neither slumbers nor sleeps. He has infinite power and infinite wisdom to make sure that happens. We got a God who is for us. Always for us always for our good. What a beautiful window into the heart of God. But second, this promise is a lifesaver. I'm not talking about the candy, but that donut-shaped, buoyant, 
flotation device attached to a rope that you throw out when someone's drowning. And it's called a lifesaver because this thing never sinks. It's by design always floating. No matter how high the wave or severe the storm, if you hold on to it, you will go up. And that's what this promise does for you. If you cling to it, there is no storm that can capsize you, no wave that can drown you. This promise will pull you up. Why? Well, let's break down this promise into its component parts. I'm going to focus on a few words here that we tend to gloss over, but these words pack punches, all right? So the first word is all, right? In all things, all. This is the scope of the promise. And to know the scope, you have to look at the context. What, what precedes verse 28? Well, if you look at verse 18 to verse 27, I, I don't have time to exegete that, but if you look at that, it's all about groaning, because as much as there is a promise of glory, that promise of glory compels us to live out our lives in this broken world first. And so it says the earth groans and our spirit groans with it, our human spirit, and the spirit of God groans with our groans and translates that into perfect prayer. But the context right before the promise is all groaning and brokenness. And then you go down to verse uh, 34. So right after the promise, um, Sorry, verse 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? And then Paul quotes a psalm to express his emotions. For your sake we face death all day long. We're considered as sheep to be slaughtered. So when Paul says all things, the context is pain and suffering. This promise is couched between groaning and nakedness. Groaning and sword, and Paul yet says, in all things. Isn't that powerful? Isn't that amazing that this promise doesn't leave out the pain? Second word, works. It says God works. God doesn't take a day off. Bad things don't happen to us because God is on a smoking break or falls asleep. He is constantly at work, constantly moving, shaping, closing, opening, shifting. God's always at work. And the third word, good. Here's where the promise really becomes a good promise is because it says good for our good. But, you know, that's a complicated good because good includes groaning and sword. <laughs> that's not the good I like. I like hot tub and Chick-fil-A. <laughs> I'm happy to report Chick-fil-A moved into my neighborhood. So I remember you guys all the time when I eat at Chick-fil-A. Anyway, um, we, it's really important for us to understand what Paul means by good, because good seems really complicated here. And what you have to understand is that when Paul said good, he never had in mind just our 85 years here on earth. Because if all I have were 85 years and I go to the ground and there's no eternal consequences, no heaven, no hell, I just, I'm nothing, then I would be a rabid hedonist. Why wouldn't I be? Why pursue virtue? Why suffer for ministry when it, there's no eternal consequences? Why? Good would mean whatever makes me comfortable and happy now. Whatever maximizes my pleasure now. And I hope you all don't think that way because we live for a quadrillion to the quadrillionth power of years. We will outlast the stars. So therefore, Paul looks at the scope of our eternal lives. 
knowing that our 85 years here sets the contours of whatever vessel we take to heaven that God will fill, which is our reward, our experience and pleasure of his glory. And if 85 years shapes that thing that we will take into glory forever, then the good is whatever can push out the boundaries of this right here. And here's the thing Paul is saying. The very thing that widens you and deepens you to experience more of God tends to be pain. That's why Paul says in Romans chapter 5, verses 2 through 5, and we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance character, and character hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, which has been given to us. Paul is describing a chain of reactions that start with suffering and lead to hope and love. And so that's why we can say, okay, God's working for my good, even when I'm feeling like I'm drowning, sinking, when the ground underneath me begins to split. God is up to my good because he's not looking at just my 85 years on earth. He's looking at my glory. He's looking at my forever. We just don't aim high enough. Hot tub and Chick-fil-A is so low (laughs) compared to the eternal bliss we will have with God. And God wants to maximize that. And so you might not understand why something's happening. It's hard for you to call it good. But Paul is looking long range and saying, no, no, no. This is going to lead to hope, to love, to more of God. Fourth word, love. Because the promise says in Romans 8.28 that he works for the good of those who love him. There's a specific audience for this promise. It's for those people who can say honestly, I love God and God loves me. And trust me, that makes sense. Because you wouldn't want to be close to a God you didn't love, who didn't love you. This God, because he's going to invasively touch your life. If I love my wife, I would not want her to do what she's doing to me or what I do to her, which is invasively disciple each other. (laughs) You get married, they're going to touch your stuff. Get into your business. Talk to you about things you don't want to talk about. But our covenant bond holds us together And sure enough, those conversations are actually for my good. You want to unpack 28 and live it out? You don't even have a shot until you enter into a covenant love relationship with God. Where you put the spiritual ring on your finger and he is your God. And you are his child, his beloved. Now this verse begins to have resonance because it's in the intimate place where God can speak to you about the good he's doing in your pain, in the intimate place. There's some measure of good, I guess, in earthly sense, in a one-night stand, but it does not compare to 40, 50 years of covenant marriage, the good that is produced in that relationship. And yet we try to string together Sunday stands. And we wonder why this verse is hollow. No intimacy, this verse doesn't make any sense. 
This is a verse God whispers to your soul. He doesn't sprinkle it from a distance. God, rain down the blessings. What if he wants to get up close to you and whisper in your ear, I am your blessing. My presence is your blessing. My love for you is the, ble- is the thing. David says, your love is better than life. And that's something whispered in intimacy. For those of you who do not know this love, I'll give you a chance at the end to receive it. But for those of you who are saints, and you're going through something, and you're confused, and you're angry, I invite you to draw near to the heart of God and let him whisper this verse over your life. The last word is, is purpose. Because it says at the end of this promise that he we have been called according to his purpose. I love that word purpose because what that means is I am not trailblazing my path, making mistakes, and here is God with the divine whiteout, just erasing all my errant. That's not how it's working. I am not blazing my own path. God is before me with a purpose, and he's making sure that even my mistakes are folding up into that purpose. All that's good. That I'm not just pinballing from one mistake to another. But God is doing something in my, you know what? It took Joseph 40 years to get to a place where he could look at his brothers and say, you intended harm, but God intended it for good to accomplish something bigger. But he didn't have the Holy Spirit. And he he did not have the new covenant. We who are on this end of the cross, we don't need 40 years to say this. We have this promise where we can look at our problems every single morning and say, "Ah, you're intending for my harm, but I got a God who has a purpose for my good. Amen. I'll put this all together now. And we got a serious lifesaver. Something you can hold on to. Something you can hold on to when it gets night, when it gets dark, when it gets hard. Say this with me. And we know that in God, for the, of those who, and are called according to his. Amen. Sear that into your soul. That is a lifesaver. Whenever you feel like you're going down, hang on to this promise. And finally, a guarantee. Secured an eternal past, present, future. I want to know verse 28 is true. And for some of you, just the fact it's in the Bible, you're good to go. Praise God for your faith. Right? But for some of us, we need something a little more. And so I love how Paul gives us the logic in verses 29 to 30 as to why verse 28 is an absolute guarantee. And here's how Paul does it. He zooms way out, like way out, and shows you how your 85 years is just a blip in the eternal timeline, beginning with God's foreknowledge and predestination. In other words, there was never a moment in your life where God didn't know you and God didn't choose you. Eternally he knew you, and eternally you were chosen, and you were always meant to be a son or daughter. And then at some point it says he called you. I know Pastor Brett's a fantastic evangelist, but even he doesn't have the power to save you. God had a plan for you, and as Pastor Brett preached, his preaching, God's plan connected, and you were called in. And then it says that he justified you. 
because God can't just call in sinners. Something has to happen because God's holy and perfect, and he can't bring near him people who, as Stephen Law eloquently mentioned, are lechers and sinful people. And so what he does is he provides a way for your sins to be paid for, removed from you, the wrath gone through the death of his son Jesus. The penalty was paid, the wrath removed, and you were made innocent and clean. You are justified. And then it says we are glorified. We are transformed. We become like God. We shine like the stars. We enter into a love we've been waiting for our entire lives. And we experience glory with God. And this is stated as a fact. Like this is a river that is not going backwards. This is moving in one direction and it ends with glory and nothing can stop it. And you are swimming in that. It's beautiful. But here's what Paul does. He drives us even deeper in the grammar. You got to love it when Paul tweaks the grammar to teach you something. This is where seminary is paying off for me a little bit. <laughs> Everything's in the past tense. And for called and justified, even predestined, predestined, called, justified, that makes sense. Predestined happened in the eternal past. Called happened at some point when we raised our hand. Justified happened 2,000 years ago. But why is glorified in the past tense? Because if you look at Romans 8, it says we are waiting for glory. We better be waiting for glory because this is not working for me. Like this cannot be the glorified body that I was promised. All right? This cannot be. <laughs> God's going to sanctify the Chick-fil-A right out of me when I get to heaven. Praise Jesus. I love the gospel. So we're waiting for glory, and yet this is in the past tense. Why? Here's what Paul's trying to say in that. God is already in your glory. He sees it. It's already happened for him. God doesn't have to wait. God's outside of time. J.R. Tolkien, when he finished The Hobbit and wrote the last, put the last period in, in his novel, or replace it with any book you've, you love, the characters in the book have a timeline. But the author knows it from beginning to end. He can enjoy the beginning, he can dwell on the middle, and he can dance about the end because God is outside the timeline. He's not stuck in our time. So God is enjoying your glory already. He sees it. He celebrates it. He declares it. And that's why it's in the past tense. We got to catch up to it. There's a I don't know how many years left, and time has to catch up, and the angels are longing to see it, but God is already in it. And when you know the outcome, oh, it changes everything, doesn't it? You all watch the Super Bowl, right, most of you? You know, it's crazy in L.A. I took a quick poll. Not even half my congregation raised their hand. It's crazy. There's not a football town, I guess, in L.A. Not yet. Not like the Redskins here and Eagles and Giants. I know there's a lot of East Coast people who love football. But y'all watched it, and you're probably anxious a little bit, right? When the game is close, you don't know the outcome. There's anxiety. And some of the uh, Patriots fans still have anxiety. I apologize for that. But now the, the game is finished. We know the outcome. When they play that thing back with voiceovers and slow motion where it's like a battlefield, not just a football game, right? We, we men enjoy the intricacies of the game, when it's slowed down, it's all in the past tense. You don't watch that with anxiety. 
There's a sense of security because you know the outcome, especially if you're an Eagles fan. You know the outcome, <laughs> which means the worse the Eagles do, the greater the glory. It just adds to the glory of the Eagles because you know the outcome. Let me translate that to why that is good for us today. The outcome for your life is secure. You win. You end up in glory. But, 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 we live minute to minute, play to play. And sometimes you fumble. Sometimes you throw an interception. Sometimes the play breaks down because of you. You missed a tackle. You missed an assignment. And that is the extent of my football knowledge. I can't push it farther. <laughs> I apologize, Elder Green. I apologize, Elder Green. But you feel defeated. You feel like you screwed up. You feel like whatever stakes were uh, in, that pos- in that potential endeavor, you've ruined it. And you feel terrible. But listen, all that is just room for God's strength to be made perfect. All that just resounds to the drama of the glory that's awaiting you. Because the outcome is secure. You are glorified. Glorified. And therefore, there's peace. It doesn't take away the hurt. That's why we have the groaning passage right before. But we can move through it with our eyes locked on the victory. That's why later it says we are more than conquerors because the outcome is already certain. Praise God. Praise God. Let's hold on to this promise. And we know that in God for the of those who and are called according to his Amen. Amen. Amen.